Hello, and welcome to another COVID-19 law and policy briefing presented by Public Health Law Watch, an initiative of the George Consortium in association, in association with the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here today to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully answer some of the questions you might have. My name is Sabrina Adler. I'm the Vice President of Law and Policy at Change Lab Solutions. Change Lab Solutions is a law and policy organization that located in Oakland, California. We're a national organization that advances equitable laws and policies to ensure healthy lives for all. We prioritize communities whose residents are at highest risk for poor health. Joining me today are my colleague at Change Lab Solutions, Senior Attorney Derek Carr. Derek works primarily on issues related to substance abuse and addiction, including commercial tobacco control, as well as on preemption and health equity across issue areas. We're also joined by our friend and collaborator, Kim Haddow, who's the Director of the Local Solutions Support Center a national hub that connect, coordinates, and creates efforts to counter state preemption and strengthen local democracy. Kim has worked as a reporter and the news director of an all-news radio station, a media consultant for political candidates and causes, and as a strategic and media consultant for nonprofit organizations. So welcome, Derek and Kim. Thank you for joining me. Today, we are going to talk about preemption. So what it is, what effect it's had on public health and law and policy more generally, and then honing in on how it's coming up in the context of COVID-19. So without further ado, Derek, can you start off by telling us a little bit about preemption generally? For those who aren't familiar with the concept, what is preemption and why is it important and how how does it come into play when we're talking about public health and equity? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sabrina. So in our federalist system, government authority is, of course, divided between the federal, state, and local levels. And at its core, preemption is a legal doctrine that allows a higher level of government to limit or even a eliminate the power of a lower level of government to regulate a specific issue. So federal laws can preempt state and local laws, and state laws can preempt local laws. Now, generally, a government can't do anything that slick with the higher level of government laws. But depending on the type of preemption, lower levels of government, like cities and counties, may be prevented from passing any laws on a certain issue, or they may be prevented from passing certain types of laws affecting that issue. And we usually break down preemption into three broad categories. First, there is ceiling preemption, which occurs when a higher level of government establishes regulation and prohibits lower levels of government from enacting any additional requirements or restrictions. So ceiling preemption can be thought of as a setting maximum standard. Second, there is floor preemption, which some argue that floor preemption isn't really preemption at all, although from a legal perspective, we certainly think about it that way. And floor preemption is best understood as when a higher level of government sets minimum standards onto which lower levels of government may add additional more rigorous requirements. But the lower level of government can't uh, enact less rigorous requirements or those within the jurisdiction to ignore the law entirely. And finally, there's vacuum preemption, which is where the higher level of government doesn't establish any regulations of its own on a topic, but still prohibits lower levels of government from uh, taking action to address a particular issue. And this form of preemption occurs most frequently in the context of broad deregulatory movement. And Kim will talk a little bit more about them in a few minutes, but we can think about these three categories in the context of stay-at-home orders. In some states like California and North Carolina, the governors issued statewide stay-at-home orders that allowed local governments to implement additional restrictions based on local conditions, thereby establishing a regulatory floor. In other states, like Georgia, the statewide uh, stay-at-home order established a regulatory ceiling by prohibiting uh, cities and counties from imposing stricter requirements. And then, at least for a period of time, some states like Iowa 
Epcot didn't have any stay-at-home order in effect, but still preempted local governments from issuing their own orders, thereby creating a vacuum. Now, in the abstract, preemption is an important legislative and judicial tool for resolving problems that arise when different levels of government adopt conflicting laws on the same subject, or when having a single set of laws on a particular issue is necessary. So the example that's often given is, you know, we don't want pilots worrying about what regulations might apply as they cross uh, state lines in the air. But we also know that local jurisdictions often operate as so-called laboratories of democracy. And as the level of government closest to the people, local government policy is more likely to be grounded in a deep understanding of the health needs, community goals, and lived experiences of residents, and thus more likely to create the kind of lasting change that comes from responding to local priorities. We've seen that local governments have been able to push for a variety of policy innovations that advance health equity, whether that's increasing the minimum wage or guaranteeing paid employment leave, requiring inclusionary zoning, or expanding anti-discrimination protection. And we also know that local governments are on the front line of protection for the public health. And as we've seen with COVID-19, it's critical that they have the flexibility to rapidly respond to emerging threats. But as Kim will talk about a little bit more, you know, some state legislatures have increasingly turned preemption as their tool of choice to prevent local communities from enacting laws aimed at reducing inequities and enhancing community well-being. Most of these efforts have sought to prevent local governments from regulating a broad range of issues, not because of any real need to resolve conflicts between different levels of government, but rather because of ideological opposition to particular policies. And in far too many cases, it's been a you know majority white state legislatures limiting the political power of people of color and other subordinated populations. So this misuse of state preemption always had significant effects on public health. But COVID-19 has really shined an even harsher light on the severe consequences that can result when the, the misuse and abuse of preemption really undermines local government's ability to respond to and address the myriad health, social, and economic consequences of COVID-19. And it underscores, you know, really the longstanding structural discrimination that has driven the stark uh, racial and socioeconomic inequities that we've seen play out with COVID-19. So just to conclude with a, a brief example, you know, we've seen that uh, numerous states impose what's often referred to as tax and expenditure limitations that restrict when and how local governments can raise revenues. And as local governments seek to not only fund their direct responses to COVID-19, but also find ways to close budget shortfalls, this sort of preemption is going to really substantially limit their ability uh, to raise the necessary revenues to, to fund essential services that are, are and those services, of course, are, are critical um, for public health and for uh, correcting injustices. Thanks, Derek, for giving us that very helpful background and overview. Kim, I'm going to turn to you. And I know you've been deeply engaged in this issue for a long time. And preemption is definitely not something that's new in this pandemic. Um, what did the preemption landscape look like before this? And who's behind this misuse of preemption? Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you, uh, Derek. I would say that what we are looking at is what we call a new form of preemption that we have seen really emerge over the last decade. Uh, before 2010 and 2011, what we used to see was what Derek described as basically the use of preemption to either synchronize uh, laws between uh, the state and local government or the use of preemption to set a floor of minimum standards that local governments were encouraged and allowed to build on. But what we've seen since 2011 is exactly the opposite of that. We have seen a, a very distinct and deliberate effort to uh, deregulate. Uh, we've seen an effort to make sure that uh, actually there was not just deregulation, but no regulation 
legislation at all. And we have seen an effort to ideologically driven to stop the enactment of local policies that would, you know, help with paid sick days, minimum wage, fair scheduling, across a whole broad band of issues actually designed to improve the lives of folks um, and and diminish inequity. So, you know, starting with the election in 2010, I'll just look backwards for one minute. What we saw then was, uh, you know, a deliberate effort by Republicans um, to enact a plan called Red Map, um, excuse me, that actually was designed to increase their numbers in state legislatures across the country. And they succeeded. They captured 675 seats um, and really were able to capture a number of legislatures in it across a broad range of states. What we also saw then was, um, in addition, that the Citizens United decision by the U.S. Supreme Court didn't just open up giving by by, uh, industry and PAC um, at the federal level, but also at the local level. So you had an infusion of money that really helped with these legislatures and elect these legislators. And then finally, sitting on the shelf, um, were a number of policies created by ALEC, which is a group that represents uh, conservative lawmakers and industry designed, again, to push a deregulatory agenda. There were a number of policies that had been sitting on the shelves for a long time that had been enacted lowly, um, paid uh, sick days, for example, uh, minimum wage increases, sanctuary cities, uh, legislation that was actually written in the early 90s. So they had a combination after the election of power in the legislature and agenda pursue to pursue and money. And what we have seen since then is an explosion in the use of uh, preemption and an effort to stop regulation, as we have seen. In many cases, it is also an effort to, to end regulation completely. We call this blanket regulation, where there is an effort to make sure that uh, local lawmakers cannot regulate businesses particularly. We've also seen punitive preemption, which is something we never saw historically. That is directed at cities that defy state um, and includes, uh, the punishments include cutting off state funding. Also, we are seeing uh, punitive actions targeted at local lawmakers. So we have seen in the cases of some sanctuary city uh, legislation and preemption and gun preemption efforts to either uh, remove officials from office, uh, hold them subject to civil suits, criminal charges. This is a you know a whole new uh, a fact and characteristic of this preemption that we've seen employed in the last 10 years. So we've seen a- an explosion of the use of preemption across a broad, broad range of issues. Everything from uh, core local power like setting your own elections and setting um, wages for local officials at, or local uh, election laws to, as Derek was saying, tobacco, e-cigarettes, paid sick days, uh, you know, plastic bag bans. I mean, the effect has been uh, chilling on many fronts on broad set of policy issues. You know, and at the end of the day, what's this lack of, uh, you know, ability of localities to improve the lives of their residents means is they're not as powerful in terms of protecting their health and safety, which we are seeing play out in COVID-19, that the preemptions we've already seen in place around paid sick days and broadband uh, minimum wage are having a disproportionate effect on people of color, low-wage workers, and women. Um, and we are actually seeing this worsen, exa- 
exacerbated by the COVID-19. These disparities have been laid bare. These inequities are now, you know, fundamentally obvious to everyone, uh, including the disproportionate effect on the on the cases of COVID and uh, the death calls caused by COVID. Thank you, Kim. That's not terribly uplifting, but uh, we're gonna let's come back to the COVID-specific conversation in just a second. I just want to go back to Derek for a minute and um, say that all sounds problematic, troubling. Like there, there have been a lot of things happening over the past 10 years. I think we all recognize in the preemption sphere that are um, not good for anyone and particularly for, for vulnerable communities. But the, um, what I wanted to ask you, Derek, is, is that inevitable? Is preemption something that isn't inherently bad? No, not at all. You know, to the, to the contrary, and despite recent trends, um, you know, COVID-19 even itself really reinforces how preemption isn't, you know, it's not inherently good or bad. It's not inherently adversarial to public health equity or even good governance. You know, preemption has the power to promote fairness and equity when local governments uh, enact harmful policies, as we all know that they do, uh, or when they simply fail to address injustices. So we can look at the Civil Rights Act of 1954 or the Voting Rights Act of 95 or the Fair Housing Act. These landmark federal laws have been and continue to be critical tools for advancing civil rights, and all three do so, at least in part, by preempting state and local authorities. And just as importantly, it was that long history of discriminatory state and local laws, from explicit race-based uh, zoning, exclusionary zoning, to uh, racial covenants, to Jim Crow segregation, that acted as a driving force behind the enactment of those preemptive federal civil rights laws. And even today, we know that states and local governments continue to perpetuate, and in some cases, exacerbate racial inequities and other injustices. In the context of COVID-19, so for example, you know, targeted state preemption can help protect public health and advance health equity when local laws, government officials, or community opposition stand in the way of an effective response, whether that's blocking testing centers or quarantine sites, or by lifting stay-at-home orders before public health officials determine that it's safe to do so. You know, similarly, statewide stay-at-home orders can establish baseline protection for all residents while allowing local governments to impose additional restrictions on top of that to address uh, local conditions. And targeted state preemption could also potentially help counter local laws that uh, risk compounding the health, social, and economic consequences of COVID-19, which, as Kim mentioned, you know, are disproportionately affecting underserved communities. You know, we can look at chronic nuisance laws, for example, which exist in more than 2,000 localities and are intended to keep communities safe and livable. But many of these laws are triggered through repeated 911 calls, including calls to report violence, abuse, mental health distress. And when too many calls for assistance come from one property, many of these nuisance laws designate the callers as a quote-unquote nuisance, with penalties ranging from uh, fines to eviction. And multiple states now preempt these types of 911 nuisance laws. So at a time when entrenched economic inequality and poverty are being uh, magnified by unprecedented, unprecedented financial challenges uh, in the face of COVID-19, these types of state preemption laws that help uh, preserve access to safe, stable, and affordable housing for those who already face structural discrimination and marginalization are really more important than ever. So given that context and the landscape that Kim just described, two things really become clear. You know, first, as, as has been stated, the overwhelming majority of state preemption occurring today is not only likely to harm public health and exacerbate health inequities, but also really represents a coordinated assault on the political power of of color, low-income communities, and corruptionally marginalized groups. But also, on the other hand, you know, history really cautions against unconditional local control and highlights the need uh, to preserve the ability for states and the federal government to preempt local actions that are likely to create or perpetuate in So 
while it's clear that preemption is neither good or evil, you know, it's just a tool and like any tool it's merit depends on how it is used and to what effect. But like law and policy in general, you know, preemption has both created and alleviated health inequities and the real difficulty becomes how to reconcile that potential to both advance and hinder health equity. Thanks, Derek. So yeah, this is a, it can be a nuanced and complicated issue. We So we've been dancing around the specifics of the intersection between um preemption and COVID-19. And I want to turn back to Kim to really dive into that more concretely. What, Kim, what are we seeing in terms of the preemption landscape right now in the in the context of COVID-19? How has it complicated or maybe in some ways made easier efforts to respond to the pandemic? And what do you think about the effects of preemption and how they might change as we move from like immediate crisis response more into recovery um, period of, of the pandemic? Thanks, Sabrina. As Derek mentioned earlier, we're seeing a real patchwork approach to the use of preemption in this situation. Um, frankly, we have some governments that have been, as, as Derek mentioned, not just North Carolina and California, but also looking at states like Louisiana and Maryland, where there's actually been a cl- clear and explicit understanding that we are setting minimum standards and that cities inside these states can do more if they feel the need to protect their uh, citizens. So, for example, in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans has decided not to reopen when the rest of the state is allowed to reopen and will keep uh, stay-at-home orders in place for a bit longer. In Maryland, for example, the city of Baltimore, the counties of Montgomery and um, Prince George's have decided that uh, they are going to reopen when they feel more comfortable. And the governor has said, at your own speed, with your own discretion, you all decide. But that is not what we're seeing in other places. In Texas, for example, you know, there is a real source of of conflict right now between Harris County, which is where Houston is, and, and uh, Dallas County and the governor there. You know, Dallas County had its own longer day in place order, um, which has now been preempted. And in Harris County, there was at one point a mandatory mask law, which has now been weakened. Um, but there is an ongoing state of conflict because the governor has said you cannot enforce it in the sense of fining folks or arresting folks. And yet the localities are, are really strongly encouraging um, and, and actively pointing out to vote, you must wear a mask. So there's this kind of confusion and ongoing conflict uh, that's there. We have seen this play out in a number of places, uh, some of it racially driven, as Derek said, looking at what's going on in Atlanta and in Georgia, what's going on with St. Louis and Missouri. You know, there is clearly an effort in communities that are disproportionately affected by this uh, pandemic who are seeing higher numbers of black and brown people die, trying to do more to protect lives inside of their cities and being told you cannot do that. So St. Louis is in court. Atlanta has decided not to sue, but they're really trying to encourage that population inside of the city to do more to protect itself. But, you know, it's clear that Georgia, you know, in a hurry to uh, open up has really put lives at risk. Um, we are seeing right now where uh, opening, where states have opened up an increase in the number of cases um, where folks are not staying at home, where they are crowding place, where they aren't practicing social distancing, aren't wearing masks, and where there's no enforcement or encouraging them to do that. The other larger scale effort that's going on here is we've actually seen the preemption before, during, and now we will probably see it after this crisis. And that is places where there was already broadband preemption, already uh, uh, preemption against uh, paid sick days, already minimum wage preemption, already preemption against equitable housing policies. These are places that started from behind in terms of efforts to protect their people. I mean, you know, and so we are seeing states curious about, I'm sorry, cities curious 
is about their emergency powers. We are seeing efforts by cities in places like Tennessee and Florida to ask governors there to defend these kinds of preemptions that are in place so that cities can help their citizens uh, survive and recover from this pandemic. I mean, imagine right now there are 19 states where there's broadband preemption. All life is happening online. If you cannot access online, your kids aren't going to school, you're not working, all right, you're not getting telemedicine. Um, There is a huge problem here. Then in addition, as we just talked about, you saw a number of the stay-at-home orders aggressively preempt uh, localities from doing more than their state. So you had this preemption that was already in place, this added preemption. And as Derek mentioned, I mean, there will be major impediments, particularly around taxation and expenditure um, for cities to recover. If they cannot raise money um, to keep these frontline services in place. So we're not talking, I mean, we're talking about ambulance service and police service and fire service. I mean, we've already heard from folks who are concerned that money for education is going to be traded away from money for police. Um, so in a, in a time of diminishing sales return, sales tax returns, uh, cities are going to be desperate to figure out how to get out from under the yoke of preemption and be able to raise their own money. I don't even need to be here because you've teed up my next question perfectly already and I could just hand it off. But what I was going to get to next was diving into actual concrete steps that we can take to address this misuse of state preemption, especially in, in the current context. I think there's a couple of ways that that, that can happen. I, I'm, I wanted, I'm going to get let both of you have a chance to weigh in on this. But Derek, I'll start with you. Can you talk about some of the structural elements of the way our government works that might allow localities to address this? And then Kim, I know you've been involved in a lot of the organizing and repeal pieces of this work. So I'll turn it to you to, to chat about that part when Derek, once Derek's done. Yeah, absolutely. And before jumping into that, I, I want to add one one other point on the, the tax and expenditure and the preemption too. Is, you know, it's not just a, an issue of raising revenues and making sure that those services are are available, which of course is a very important part of it. But there's also huge equity potential equity complications from that. You know, as you constrict the the ways in which cities and counties and other local governments can raise revenue, they have to turn to whatever means remains available. And unfortunately, in many cases, that turns out to be things like fines and penalties and you know huge burdensome licensing fees and things of that nature, which we know, you know, looking at Ferguson, looking at other examples, are really going to have a disproportionate effect of uh, on uh, already affected, disproportionately affected communities. And so if you sort of cut off the arm of, of their ability to uh, raise revenues in a more equitable way, you're forcing their hand into, um, you know, less equitable means of, of raising those funds, um, sort of a, a death spiral, of, if, if you will. In response to the, the specific question on, on concrete steps, so as Kim, you know, alluded to a, a moment uh, ago, you know, most uh, states have really broad emergency uh, authority laws that grant their uh, governors or other executive officials really broad and substantial powers during declared emergencies. And in many of the, uh, in many states, that power includes the ability to uh, suspend the operation of state laws that are impeding responses to that, um, to the emergency. So we've seen, for example, here in California, you know, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom issuing executive orders that lifted uh, preemption that would otherwise uh, restrict local authority over certain aspects of eviction work, sort of clearing the way for uh, local governments to ensure that people aren't evicted from their home um, during this crisis. 
And as you know, as you mentioned, there are efforts in other states to ask for similar things, you know, ranging from uh, around housing to around employment policy preemption um, to you know sanctuary cities to ensure that uh, uh, immigrant populations are are protected. And it's really a, a you know just a matter of, of governors understanding the the vast authority that they hold and, and being willing to to use that authority to you know empower local government to um, to take the steps that, that are really needed to, to not only you know get us through this crisis but to, to recover from it. Thanks, Derek. Kim, I want to turn to you to talk a, a little bit about um, organizing and repeal campaigns and what we've seen in that space and what what we might see or look look towards in the future in that space. Sure. Thank you, Sabrina. So you know one of the things that is definitely if there is any silver lining to this, I think there has been an appreciation for the role of local government. I mean, I think that folks understand now that to actually recover um, and respond adequately to protect the lives and health and economic well-being of folks, cities and states really need to work together. And cities can't work as full partners if one hand is tied behind their back. And I think there is an understanding that as the frontline services local governments provide could be hampered or hamstrung from preemption, that there is a need to suspend or repeal preemption. And we've seen this happen, you know, a wee bit. I mean, we actually started seeing repeal efforts. Colorado last session became the first state to legislative repeal minimum wage preemption. But I think that what's starting to happen is people understand that, you know, this constriction um, and, and these impediments are, you know, hurting the quality of folks' lives and health. Um, and so what we are hoping is two things. One of them, as I said, we are working with uh, different organizations on the ground um, to really work with their state government to see if some of these laws can be suspended um, and or actually begin the process of repeal. We are also looking toward the 21 sessions where legislatures are now have, I think, a deeper understanding and appreciation of how local government could take care of these, some of these problems and yet are handcuffed from doing so. Um, and so we are starting to see, uh, see some energy around the repeal efforts, particularly, as I said, around broadband, around paid health, those two particularly. I also think as these eviction moratoria that have been put in place that Derek mentioned um, come to, you know, are expiring, I think that there's either going to be a need to, to extend these suspensions or to figure out how to repeal them because cities will not recover if they cannot find housing or housing is unaffordable for um, their citizens. Um, and, you know, and the other thing I would say is, is that we have been working on long-term reform of uh, home rule, which is the power that cities have uh, to have, you know, their own authority um, and independence. And I think what COVID and this crisis has also shown a light on is that the, in the imbalance between state and localities, that the pendulum has swung too far one way and that we really need to readjust or recalibrate the relationship between cities and states so that there is, you know, a working relationship, you know, and the collaboration that used to occur and the kind of effectiveness that can occur, what we've seen even within the COVID context when cities and states work together. So I think that we will see a call for home rule reform. We're already seeing folks asking us, you know, how how do we structurally reconfigure this? And so I think we're going to see more of that coming out of this uh, pandemic. Thank you, Kim. So there's been a lot of gloom and doom here, but I want to pull out what Kim just talked about as, as a high note that we can end on here, which I think is, I totally agree that I think this is leading to a renewed understanding of the importance of the role that local government plays, particularly in public health, but across all the issues that are coming up related to everything that's happening in the pandemic. So as you said, housing, paid sick leave, et cetera. Um, and I, I think that that will also help shine a light on the role that preemption plays, has played, 
it does play will continue to play in in making it harder for local governments that are really leading the way in a lot of places in the response to do what they need to do both now and moving forward. So hopefully amidst all the all the gloom and doom, we can pull that out as sort of a, a high note and hopefully there'll be others as well. I want to thank both of you for, for joining me today and chatting about preemption and everyone who will listen to this. These briefings are posted every uh, Tuesday and Thursday at noon and you can find them on the Public Health Law Watch YouTube channel or also posted on Twitter at PHLawWatch, hashtag COVID Law Briefing. The shows are also archived by the Weekend Health Law Podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefings are produced by Faith Calic and Bethany Saxon, and we will see you next time. Please stay safe and thank you.